See, in our times of great distress, I'm really tempted to cry out against God. Why have you done this? Why don't you fix this? When will you make this right? What do I need to do differently? But instead, David cries out and falls into God's hands. You are the one who gives mercy. So come and be merciful to me today. Come and restore what is broken and provide that sacrifice I can't make that all could be right again. Where is Jesus in the Old Testament? Same place he is in the New. Standing before and between heaven and earth on our behalf. Bringing us from here in this place to stand there before God, not as children deserving his wrath, but as children who've been forgiven forevermore. Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay, because faith is not about having it all figured out, and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before He'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Good morning. It is so good to be here with all of you today. For those of you who do not know, my name is Adam, and I am the pastor here at The Point. And uh, soon we're going to have a second pastor, also named Adam. I promise it won't get super confusing. But until then, uh, I had the joy yesterday of going hiking, something I haven't done in far too long, because my sister surprised me, said, hey, I've got a four-day weekend, and I don't mind a 13-hour drive, and just like showed up Friday night super late. And she's leaving today after church. And so I got to go hiking, which was a ton of fun. And between this verse, these chapters that were, or this chapter we're going to look at today, and my hike yesterday, I found my heart filled with joy thinking about you. Well, specifically one of you. Uh, I don't know if you know my friend Brian over here. He always sits over here unless he's serving or his seat is taken, then he sits someplace else. But Brian and I, we enjoy hiking together uh, once a year, and Brian doesn't like silence. Anybody in here uh, afraid of silence? Well, the thing about Brian is when you're hiking for 50 or 60 miles, it's hard to fill all the silence unless you're hiking with him. (laughs) Because Brian is really, really good at coming up with questions just for us to talk. And they're always would-you-rather questions. Like, would you rather be called by your wife's name for the rest of your life or wear her clothes for a month? Or would you rather eat crayons for breakfast or have to put ink in your coffee? Is there a third option? And almost every option he gives, you're like, I don't really like either, but I guess I'll choose this one. And generally, those questions create a whole lot of conversation that fills all the silence and leaves you really feeling like you know all the things you never thought you needed to know that don't actually matter about somebody else. And today, in this story we're looking at, there's a would-you-rather question. 
But it's not a hypothetical, would you rather? It's God himself asking, which would you like? Take your pick. And and unlike the questions Brian asks that have no meaning outside of what he's asking, no consequence, I'm not bound to wear my wife's clothes or be called by her name. No, this question God asks comes with the weight of consequence. What's next? But before we get to this question God asks, I want to share with you some of the story that leads up to this. So today we're going to be in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. If you are sitting down here and you notice in the pews there's now Bibles there, which we haven't had before. And if you're upstairs, we realize this morning we only have two end tables, so we don't have a place to put Bibles, but we'll get one later. Uh, So if you want to use one of those Bibles to follow along, the page number is 438. And if you want to use your own Bible or your phone, uh, feel free to do either of that. First Chronicles chapter 21. Chronicles is one of the history books detailing what happened to the people of God and how God worked through history to provide for his people. And Samuel and and Kings, those two books kind of spell out the whole history of the people of God from the time they become a nation with a king until the time they get disbanded because of their sinfulness. And then Chronicles comes along and essentially repeats the whole story again, just with a slightly different perspective. And, And David, if you're not familiar with who David is, the main character of today's story, David is the king of Israel. In fact, he's the second king of Israel. And the king before him got removed from his throne because he was ungodly. He actually went to honor God out of selfish gain and selfish motive. And God said, because you're seeking your own gain and not me, I'm going to take this kingdom from you and give it to somebody else. And David, as a young boy, the youngest of eight siblings, right? He's got seven older brothers who are bigger and stronger and, and smarter than him. Despite not fitting all of the measurements you'd expect for a king, David is the one who's chosen to be the next king. And we see pretty early on, David is a man of pretty spectacular faith. And in fact, the very first thing we see David do before he even becomes king after this knowledge of what his future holds, the Israelites are in war. And there's this great enemy, the Philistines, coming against them. And the Philistines have an upper hand, an advantage that the Israelites did not have. Those really, really tall people. Specifically, one really, really tall person named Goliath, who is nine feet tall and really good with the sword. And so all the Israelites were terrified to go to war, except for David. David, despite being small in stature, despite not having armor that fit or armor at all, despite no formal training, goes to battle against this giant and defeats him. His first of hundreds of victories against the enemies of the people of God. Now, several years later, David is king. And David has already said to God, I would like to build for you a temple, a place for you to be worshipped for all of time, a place not only for that, for people to experience your presence and know that you're with them, to be forgiven and made whole of all of their brokenness. But God says, because of all the blood that you have shed, I won't let you build my temple, but I'll let you prepare for this building and I'll let your son build my temple. 
And not only this, God then gives a promise to David, and the promise given to David is that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne forever. Pretty good news if you're the king at the time. So that's the backdrop. Right as we come into chapter 21, David has just once again gone to battle with these Philistines and defeated more giants, enemies against them, as this victorious king who's conquered so many enemies, we get this moment. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. First off, when you're reading scripture, if something stands out as a little weird, it's worth stopping and saying, why is that there? See, when I read this, what stands out is Satan comes against David by encouraging him to take a census. How or why in the world would that matter? Who cares how many people are in the army? Well, as the story unfolds, what we see is David's motives for the census were perhaps less than pure. See, the reason he'd want to know the size of his army and the strength of his might could be pride. Because by knowing just how mightyful he is, how powerful his army, how great he is, he's able to tell and, and cause fear to his enemies. Don't you know what I'll do if I come against you? I mean, this isn't just a tactic of David's. Literally, for all of history, big, large, powerful armies have displays of might to show other people, look what we could do if you cause us to. Perhaps the reason this was wrong was pride. Or maybe, if you read the rest of the story leading up to it, you see that God doesn't so much care about the size of our strength and our might. In fact, over and over and over again, God intentionally chooses fewer people in smaller groups and the least qualified and the ones you'd say there's no chance for them to win. And God shows up as the commander of his army. The angel of the Lord comes and fights on behalf of his people. The angel of the Lord comes and brings victory to those you would never expect it. Perhaps the reason this was sinful was David was looking not to just know the number of people in his army, but he was looking to see what military might he had that he could go to war with or without God's direction and instruction. Perhaps this census was sinful not because of pride or a desire to continue fighting new wars. Perhaps the census was sinful because in Exodus, in the laws given to the people, there was a requirement. Anytime you take a census, there is a tax that was to be collected for the sake of God, for the people who serve God, for the Levites. And David, he never does that. Perhaps this was sinful because he's directly disobeying God's command in taking a census. For whatever reason this is wrong, we see that it's wrong because Joab, one of his leading commanders, immediately warns him, don't do this. 
Verse three, but Joab said, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord, the king, all of them, my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? Joab says, look, may God multiply however many people there are by a hundred times which is like the Hebrew way of saying like infinity and beyond, right? May God just make it so much bigger that it doesn't even matter how many people are there. Why would you care? But David insists. So in verse four, the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. Interesting, he would choose to exclude two tribes. The Levites were the priests, the people responsible for connecting the people to God. Almost as if Joab said, I know this is sinful, so I will exclude those who draw us closer to God. Almost in the hopes that when this all backfires, there's somebody to intercede. Somebody to step in before God and say, please forgive us, for we have sinned. And Benjamin was the tribe that lived in the region where Jerusalem was. Jerusalem, the place where God had promised he would not only build his temple, but his descendant would come and sit on that throne. Perhaps Joab, afraid of the consequence of this sin, excluded these two tribes in the hopes that God would spare his people and keep his promises even when they sinned. Then comes verse seven, but God was displeased with this thing and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, Another way of saying a prophet who was called to speak to David and declare to David what God says and what God does. God speaks to Gad and says to to him, thus says the Lord, would you rather, sorry, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you or else three days of the sword of the Lord pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Would you rather three years of famine, three years of your enemy conquering you, or three months of your enemy conquering you, or would you rather three days of God coming against you with his wrath and his anger? Would you rather? God says, whatever you choose, I will do. If you were David, how would you respond? You know you've screwed up. You know this was a mistake. I should not have done that thing. Would I rather my enemy come against me or like natural sickness and disease come against me? Or would I rather God himself come against me? See, I think I'd be tempted to go for three years of famine. I could stand to eat a little less. 
And, and maybe in those three years of famine, I would survive. I'd be fine even if somebody else suffers. Or maybe three months of my enemies. I mean, he's got a pretty mighty army. How bad could it be? He just counted. There's like a million and a half people who can fight. Really, how bad would your enemies be against you? But three days of God coming against you? That sounds terrifying. Like we've seen the things God can do. Have you heard of a guy named Noah? Or like the people of Jericho when God came against them? Or all of this story where anytime God shows up to fight, you better hope you're on his side. What would you choose? Then David says something that I found quite surprising in preparing. David said to God, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. David would rather have God come against him for three days than have man come against him or nature come against him. And as I read this, I just couldn't help but wonder why? Why would this great and mighty God be better to be your enemy than your enemy himself? And David answers that. For his mercy is very great. See, David recognizes that if his enemy comes against him, his enemy won't let up. His enemy won't have mercy and, and give in when they're in despair. His enemy won't stop until he's done everything he could to utterly destroy them. But with God, there may be pain right now, but he will be merciful. There may be sorrow in the moment, but he will relent. So David chooses three days with God. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, a plague about the land, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. Remember, we've said anytime the angel of the Lord is there or the angel, it's almost always referring to Jesus before he was born in the flesh. God himself coming like a man to do God's work. The angel went to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. Now there's a really cool parallel I have to just take a brief aside to share with you here. See, the angel of the Lord shows up in another moment where God's promises seem to be in jeopardy. Here, as the angel's coming to destroy Jerusalem, there's this question the reader must ask. If Jerusalem is destroyed, how will God's promised king ever sit enthroned there? How will God's people ever meet with God there? If Jerusalem comes to nothing, has God left us for good? If you rewind to Genesis, there's a story in which God gives a great promise. I will make your descendants more numerous than the stars. You will be a blessing to every nation. But first, sacrifice your son, the one whom I've given. If you're familiar with that story, Abraham, he then goes up on a mountain 
to sacrifice the very promise God has given to him. And as he raises his knife to kill his son, the angel of the Lord speaks to him. He sees what Abraham's about to do and relents, stop, and in his mercy provides a ram instead. The chronicle, or the, the writer or author of this chronicle, he writes in such a way to draw the reader's ear back to that story. God's promises on the line, and yet God sees and relents and is filled with mercy. The angel, he sees Jerusalem, he's about to destroy it, but God relents. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. And in his hand, a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who, command, who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. And I love this prayer of David's as he sees the angel of the Lord in what's described as the place between earth and heaven, the one interceding in the middle between what's happening here and what God is doing there. David cries out, look, it was my sin. Do what you will to me, but not, not to these sheep. Again, if you're familiar with scripture, this language may ring a bell. See, later in the story, what's coming again is another who will say, not to these sheep, but to me, do as you please. Not to these sheep, but let all of my sin, all of this sin be on, on me. The story continues. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, give me the sight of the threshing floor that I may build an, on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. Again, there's some parallels here from Abraham who went out and purchased the land from somebody who insisted, let me just give it to you. He said, no, I need to purchase this space so that for all of time, it can be a place dedicated to God, to his presence, to his mercy. So David, he purchases this land so that he can build an altar. Now, as I started in the story before, the king before him built an altar he wasn't supposed to build, and it was that act of selfish worship that led to his destruction. But this story is a little different. 
See, the altar David builds, he builds because the angel of the Lord suggested it. Build a place for sacrifice that there you might be forgiven. Build a place where praise can be given to God, where out of obedience you can give up everything that God might relent. So he does that. Then it goes on in verse 26. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Again, fire from heaven is often the way in which God reveals himself and approves of the work of man. You have fire in the burning bush that conceals the angel of the Lord and fire that leads the people and fire that brings destruction to Sodom and Gomorrah and fire that consumes all of the sacrifice given that there's nothing left. Fire from heaven giving God's approval of this act of David's. God's approval of what he's pleading for, mercy and grace. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time when David saw the the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place of Gibeon, But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. It ends with this little aside. Look, we know you shouldn't normally build an altar, but in this time, in this place, it was allowed because God commanded it, and there was no way for him to get to the place where God had authorized the sacrifice. As we've been looking at this series Where is Jesus in the Old Testament? What is God doing through Jesus in the Old Testament? Here's what I want you to know today. God, through Christ, is giving mercy. There in the Old Testament, when sin has earned God's wrath, God sees and he relents, and he commands a sacrifice be made. One that brings him peace. One that not just brings him peace, but brings David and the people peace with God. This Jesus of the Old Testament is the same of the new. The one who would for three days experience the full wrath of God because of our sin. The one who for three days would experience being an enemy of God's so that a sacrifice could be made and you and I could be made right. I love this story as David cries out, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is very great. See, in our times of great distress, I'm really tempted to cry out against God. Why have you done this? Why don't you fix this? When will you make this right? What do I need to do differently? But instead, David cries out and falls into God's hands. You are the one who gives mercy. 
So come and be merciful to me today. Come and restore what is broken and provide that sacrifice I can't make that all could be right again. Where is Jesus in the Old Testament? The same place he is in the New. Standing before and between heaven and earth on our behalf. Bringing us from here in this place to stand there before God, not as children deserving his wrath, but as children who've been forgiven forevermore. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are merciful. You relent from our suffering and our anguish. The wrath that we deserve for the sin that we have committed, you have borne upon yourself. We thank you that in the Old Testament, you were there as a God who rescues a God who defends, a God who hears and sees, and a God who is merciful. And we thank you that your mercy is new every morning. So Lord, we come before you today with our sin, with our brokenness, with the places where you feel like you are far from us. And in our distress, we call upon you and we fall upon your hand, for you are merciful. Fill us with this strength, this hope, and this life today, tomorrow, and all week long. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When David saw God's mercy, when God had relented, he offered up to God a sacrifice. And we, thankfully, no longer need to do that in this place. That would make the carpet smell really bad and be quite a mess. Uh, There's nothing we need to give to God to be able to be made right with him. But he does invite us to trust him with all things. And though there's no requirement to give anything to him, he invites us to say, I want to participate in sharing this good news with others by trusting in you even with my finances. And so as we continue our worship this morning, we're going to continue by collecting an offering. If you're somebody who prefers to give with cash or check, um, or if you filled out one of those physical Connect cards that are right in front of you, uh, you can put that Connect card or that gift in the popcorn buckets on your way out when you leave later today. Uh, They'll just be right in the back by the doors. If you're somebody who prefers to give electronically, you can do so at thepointknox.com. However you give and whatever you give, know this. It's not to get God's love, but because you already have it. Thank you. And while you're looking at those questions, this is the part of the service where we always uh, receive your questions and I do my best to respond. And whatever question you have that stumps me uh, or I want to study some more, we'll respond later in the week with that one. Um, So Adam, as you're pulling those up, anything that's a real doozy for the morning? I'm just trying to make sure I'm pronouncing this one right. This is a great question. So three questions total. Uh, Let's see here. The first one may be a cut. Let's see. Does Pastor Adam think he can pull off pink panther pants and a red pepper shirt like the guitar? Steve can. <laughs> and if I had them, I absolutely would. I was actually standing up here and I walked up. I was like, you know, I didn't pay any attention to his pants. Here, but they're pretty awesome, those pink panther pants. Thanks, Steve. If you don't know Steve, uh, he's probably got the best sense of fashion here. Uh, some days he shows up in these and some days like bow ties. And Thanks, Steve. We love you. And now that we've put him on the spot, he's super embarrassed. We love you, Steve. (laughs) Okay. 
Next question, what were the different purposes of the 12 tribes of Israel? Did each have special focuses and jobs or only the Levites? I don't know. Um, so the 12 tribes, 10 of them were descendants of Jacob, like his sons, and then two of them were uh, from Joseph. Joseph's family uh, got two tribes. So uh, I'm not sure entirely the special purposes other than they certainly were all given different blessings, and those blessings carried some different weight. Uh, like Judah was promised that one of Judah's descendants would be the one who sat on the throne. Uh, I don't know about the rest, so I can do some digging and see if there was one that they kind of commonly held or if it just happened that one had a purpose and the rest were just there. Where are you with substitutionary atonement? Is it solid? Is it incomplete? Is it wrong? No pressure. All the sacrificial references brought it to mind. Uh, <laughs> thanks for the doozies, Adam. Uh, sacrificial atonement. I'm not sure what you mean by the solid or the, what was it? Let's see. Solid incomplete. Solid incomplete, or is there a third or just? Is it, is it wrong? Oh. Is, it, is it solid? Is it incomplete? Is it wrong? I'm not quite sure what you're asking, so I'll answer what I think you're asking, and if I'm totally wrong, Forgive me, and let's talk some more. Um, so substitutionary atonement, the idea that Jesus uh, was our substitute who filled in our place for our forgiveness. Uh, yes, that is true. There's probably some ways that people use that that I'm not familiar with. They're not coming to mind right now that may or may not be so good. Um, but yes, Jesus took our place uh, because we deserved the wrath of God and and our sin deserves death. And because Jesus died, there's a promise in Romans that uh, if we're joined with his death, we're also joined with his resurrection. So uh, there's this promise that because he died, we also get all of his life and his resurrection. Um, now, anything more about substitutionary atonement? Some people make like Jesus died for you as the primary or only goal of scripture and say things like, if you were the only sinner in the world, uh, Jesus would die for you too. And in doing so, we forget that Jesus' death wasn't just for you and me. It was for the entirety of all creation that is broken. Um, so if in your substitutionary atonement, the idea that he died in your place, it frees you from caring about him dying for everything else that is broken, that's probably misguided. Uh, if, however, you see that he died in your place and also to restore the entirety of creation, our hope becomes less about me being whisked away and going to heaven and more about Christ restoring what's here one day. Uh, and that was a lot on a really big question. So please, if that was your question and I, did, I totally missed the answer, uh, I'd love to talk some more because I'm not entirely sure what you were asking for with that. Uh, was that all of them, just uh, those three? Six more. No, I'm just kidding. That's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whew, there was a slight panic. You're like, really? Wow. Okay. <sighs> well, every week we encourage questions because we think questions are a really helpful part of faith to wrestle with Scripture and God and the things he's doing. If you would like at any point to talk about your questions in person, or maybe not your questions, but the things that are just going on in life, uh, you'd like some advice or encouragement or prayer, 
And myself and Emily and Adam and several others would be more than interested in getting together with you and uh, grabbing coffee or tea and just talking with you. So let us know and we would love to do that. Now as you go, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor, give you his peace. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.